Welcome to the Irish Tech News Podcast, where we will bring you some of the most interesting interviews and features from the world of tech. Visit irishtechnews.ie and check out our podcast section to explore all of our previous episodes. You can subscribe to our podcast using whatever your favourite app or service is by visiting anchor.fm forward slash irish-tech-news. Hi. So today on the Irish Tech News podcast, uh, we have somebody who I'm really excited to uh, talk to. And even following his Twitter feed in the last week, it was pretty cool, too. And we'll talk about that. So first of all, who do we have the pleasure of talking to today? Hi, I'm, I'm Ben Goldfarb, uh, American journalist and author. Thanks. And um, yeah, and I guess we reviewed your book, uh, Eager Beavers and Why They Mattered, um, I think maybe last week, quite recently. Um, so I guess um, what inspired you to write that book? And since you wrote it, what's the reception been to it? Yeah, you know, I, I've, I've always really liked beavers. Uh, you know, I grew up uh, here in the U.S., of course, where there, there are, are plenty of beavers uh, around. So I, I saw them, you know, hiking, camping, fishing. Uh, so I've always been a big beaver fan. But uh, a number of years ago, uh, I, I became aware of this growing, really international movement to restore beavers to their their former habitats and, and abundance, um, not just here in the U.S., but also also in the in the U.K. as well, uh, and really all all across Europe. You know, they're just all kinds of scientists and farmers and passionate citizens uh, who who've become convinced that these are really important animals to have on the landscape and have been reintroducing them uh, really all across the, the world, which is, which is really exciting. You know, beavers, of course, they build dams, they create ponds and wetlands, and, you know, those ponds and wetlands are really important habitat for fish and birds and other mammals. Uh, you know, they, they filter out pollution, they sequester carbon. You know, here in the U.S., they actually help prevent the spread of wildfires. So these are really important animals, uh, and uh, I was really excited to write a book about this growing international movement to uh, to to restore restore beavers and the reception has been fantastic you know the of course there are all kinds of people uh, all over the world who are who are really passionate about these these animals and i feel like you know the book has helped kind of plug me into a, a great community of, uh, of beaver believers as they they call themselves yeah look i mean and and you're right i mean in in the book you um you go to the uk and you meet uh derek gow whose book we also read and reviewed um so uh the the definitely seems to be um uh a gr- okay so on one hand there seems to be growing understanding on the other hand uh do people still see beavers as vermin do, do people get it yet and understand why beavers are so so potentially helpful although i guess they do have their downsides too so so how, how, do, do you think the battle's won, or how do, how do we communicate the value of beavers? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, the, the battle is certainly not not won. I think that you know it's trending in the right direction, but there's no question that there's still a lot of beaver persecution, right? I mean, these are animals that can be difficult to live with in some ways. You know, they they flood people's property, they cut down your apple trees, they you know they they tunnel into um, flood defenses. That's kind of the, the biggest reason that uh, people don't like them in Scotland um, is you know undermining flood defenses. Um, so. You know, it, it, here in the U.S., um, you know, the federal government kills uh, 20,000 beavers every year. You know, private trappers kill tens and probably hundreds of thousands more. Um, you know, of course, they're still very persecuted in uh, in, in Scotland um, and uh, in many places in, in Europe. So the, the battle is absolutely not won. But, you know, I think it's important to remember that there are, you know, there are ways of, first, there are ways of living with these animals. You know, there are all kinds of kind of non-lethal techniques that we can use to 
you know, manage their impacts to property without having to kill them. So there's a lot, there's a lot we can do to, you know, keep them on the landscape um, in a, a more humane way. But also, you know, I think the key thing to remember too is that the, you know, the benefits that they're providing us far outweigh those costs that they're that they're inflicting on on property. Uh, you know, again, these are animals that are, are just creating incredible habitat for the fish that we love to catch. You know, they're improving our our water quality. Um, you know, they're they're fixing the streams that we've degraded over the course of, of many, many decades and centuries. So they're just providing all of these incredible services. And there's one great study in the state of Utah uh, where they basically found that, you know, reintroducing beavers to a single watershed, just one body of water, one river system in, U in the state of Utah would be worth tens of millions of dollars in ecological benefits. So these are just incredibly important, valuable animals that we should really be learning to live with. Yeah, and I mean, and in your book, you do outline uh, some, um, they're not traps, they're the bits where they guide the water to- Right, you know, right, yeah, yeah, beaver beaver deceivers is often what they're what they're called. And they're, and they're basically, you know, these kind of pipe and fence systems. Um, so, you know, you, you've got a, you know, a long sort of plastic pipe and you run that through the beaver dam or through a road culvert. And then there are fences kind of on either end of the pipe. The beavers don't, you know, plug up the, the pipe ends. And the idea is that with that pipe, you know, you're just moving water from the upstream side of the beaver dam to the downstream side. So you're, you're lowering the height of the beaver pond. So you can say, hey, you know, I really like the beavers. I like having them here. I know they're important, but, you know, I don't want to have to you know, swim through my, my backyard. Um, and you can use one of those, those, you know, flow devices or beaver deceivers to basically drop the level of that, that pond so that it's kind of a, a balance between human needs and, and, uh, and beaver needs. And, you know, those are, those are widely used uh, in, in England right now. There, you know, there, a few of those have been, have been installed um, in the kind of the river otter complex where there are, there's a, a beaver population. And, you know, those are very effective. I mean, scientists have found that, you know, they work, they work 85 to 95% of the time and they're very cost efficient too, right? Because when you're, you know, when you're trapping out beavers, you know, you have to pay that trapper every single time to come catch the beavers. Whereas if you put in one of these, these contraptions, one of these, these uh, flow devices or beaver deceivers, you know, you just put that in once and, uh, you know, it's, it's effective in many cases for, you know, 15, 20 years. Um, so these are, those are re really useful uh, sort of non-lethal coexistence devices. Yeah, and I mean, and, and and the good thing about your book is, is it articulates the impact of it, the way that it works, and that therefore you don't need to just cull them. And if you and 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 obviously when the trappers did take them out, that then had negative impacts on the land. So so you know, like I guess like in in North America, you've had you know pre many a time when there are many beavers, then you had the time then when there are no beavers, and now you have a time where. Uh, they're coming back um, and then you talk about uh, a, a cultural capacity so not actually the carrying capacity in terms of the number of animals but the amount that maybe humans can stand so so how, how many how many beavers uh, can 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 be sustained or can be managed without it reaching the point where you're having to endlessly you know, discuss the negative impacts I guess I, I'm just trying to work out um, you know what 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 would the most optimal beaver scenario be like? Would it be more beavers, or would it be about as many as there are currently? Yeah, that's a a really good question, Simon, and that's something that uh, in the beaver folks think about a lot. So, I mean, first, I think it's important to just remember how much how many beavers there used to be in North America, right? You know, so we don't really know what the beaver population was historically. 
But the best estimate we have is that there were as many as 400 million beavers in North America when when uh, when Europeans arrived. And, you know, of course, those hundreds of millions of beavers would have created hundreds of millions of beaver ponds and hundreds of millions of, of acres of ponds and wetlands. And, you know, when you go back through old explorers diaries and trappers journals and that sort of thing, you know, you read about you know, trappers and explorers going to places that today are basically deserts in, you know, in, in eastern Wyoming, for example, and finding these incredible lush, you know, wetland complexes full of, of bird bird life. And that was really thanks to beavers. Um, you know, so I, th so I think that's one really important thing to just say first off is that, you know, it's hard to overstate how abundant this animal was historically and how profoundly it influenced the land and created water where today there is none, right? So today, you know, we, we probably have, you know, 10 to 15 million beavers or so. Uh, so they're not an endangered species. They're, you know, they're, they're, they're all over the place. They're in, you know, every state except Hawaii. Um, so, you know, they're not going to go extinct anytime soon. But, you know, we're still at a tiny, tiny fraction of, you know, of what, what their, their numbers and their impact on the landscape used to be. So, you know, will, will we ever get back to 400 million beavers? Uh, probably not. There's just, you know, too much human footprint on the land today. But, you know, there's no question that we could, we could get them back, you know, at least in some numbers in, you know, every single watershed where there used to be some. You know, that's, that's the thing is that, you know, here in the state of Washington, where I live, you know, yeah, there are beavers all over the state, but there are still lots of river systems, individual river systems that used to have them that don't anymore. So, you know, will we get them back in their full abundance? Probably not. Can we get them back into, you know, nearly all of the places where they used to be? I think that's, I think that's doable. So I, I think that's what the goal should be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and, and I quite liked your chapter about California, where, you know, uh, a great naturalist had said that there were never beavers in certain areas. And then it was quite quickly proved that actually that wasn't the case. And beavers are, 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 are pretty adaptable, you know. So, yeah, you know, I think I think that's that's one really important thing to remember is that, you know, these animals and it's we don't we don't exactly know where these animals used to be. But it seems like every year, you know, we, we begin to realize that, hey, the, you know, they were they occupied more land than we thought they did. And, you know, of course, I know you talked to Derek and Derek's done a lot of that work in, you know, in in uh, in Europe and Asia just documenting the historic presence of beavers. And, you know, Derek is realizing that, hey, you know, maybe there were, um, you know, maybe there were beavers in, uh, you know, in, in the Middle East, for example, um, where, you know, which is not sort of traditionally considered beaver range, um, but historically, uh, you know, may may very well have been. And, and that was the story in California, you know, so they were considered non-native there for a long time, uh, incorrectly. And, uh, you know, just a, just a few years ago, a group of historians and naturalists and and uh, you know, and and biologists uh, basically assembled this amazing sort of trove of evidence proving that yes, of course, beavers were all over the state of California um, prior to, to European arrival. So these were really, you know, just really incredibly ubiquitous animals. You know, there were beavers historically as far east as the Korean Peninsula. Uh, you know, and there's there are beavers today in in Mongolia and China. So these are these are just they were incredibly widespread and uh, important, influential animals historically. And that's what we're trying to get back to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And therefore, look, I mean, so I, I really enjoyed your book. And, uh, you know, it, it comes out of tradition of a lot of um, great American writers, Edward Abbey, uh, Aldo Leopold. Um, and so look at your Twitter feed last week is 
some amazing photographs from Yellowstone. So, so who, who, which, which writers were your inspiration? Uh, what, 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 what got you into writing about nature? Was it other American writers or was it something else? Yeah, that's a, that's a good, a good question. So, I mean, I mean, certainly, you know, the guys, the guys that you mentioned, you know, Ed Abbey, I, you know, I read, I read Monkey Wrench Gang when I was a, a teenager and that was, that was really influential. You know, Aldo Leopold, I, I try to reread uh, Sand County Almanac every, every year or two. And, and uh, a few years ago, you know, I spent a month at, at uh, Aldo Leopold's former house in, in New Mexico. Um, you know, there, and I mean, there are just so many great uh, American nature writers, as you said, you know, David Quammen, Elizabeth Colbert and Bill McKibben. Um, it's just, uh, yeah, a, a wonderful, a wonderful tradition. I mean, for me, you know, I've, I've always just been drawn to nature. I, I'm very fortunate to have parents who, uh, you know, who took me outdoors at a young age. You know, we spent a lot of time camping and, and uh, hiking around the uh, the American Northeast, you know, in, in uh, Massachusetts and upstate New York and New Hampshire. Um, so I've always, yeah, I've always, I've always loved the, loved the outdoors and I've, I've loved to write. And um, I'm honored to be, yeah, part of this, uh, this, this, greater tradition of American nature writing. And, you know, of course, there, look, there are so many, um, you know, there are so many European writers who I, I really admire too, you know, Robert McFarlane and, and, uh, and Helen, Helen McDonald and, uh, you know, George, George Monbiot, um, you know, who, who's also written about beavers himself. Um, so I, I, yeah, I feel, I feel honored to be just one, you know, one small member of this wonderful nature writing ecosystem that exists today. <laughs> yeah, look, I mean, and I guess, so with, with with your photos uh, from Yellowstone and uh, I think it's a coyote with uh, something in its mouth, you know, yeah. <laughs> like um, with with lockdown, people have spoken about being more aware of nature uh, and also the value of being more out in nature. So it, it, it's great that you're still able to get out and, and is being out in nature a necessary part of uh, what you need to do to have a balance between just because obviously writing can be quite uh, an in indoors internal activity otherwise. Yeah, sure. No, of course, I, I feel like like being out on the landscape and experiencing it myself is a just a, you know an integral part of the the process for for me and you know going to Yellowstone and that's that's a place um, that's uh, you know just a really special place of course for you know for all all Americans really all citizens of the world but for me in particular you know I, that was my actually my first job after I graduated from university was working for the National Park Service in in Yellowstone um, and you know if, I, I'm sure that uh, you know many of your listeners have have seen kind of that that famous. Um, you know, how wolves fix rivers, uh, mm -hmm. YouTube video that takes place in Yellowstone. And that's actually, you know, one of the things that I, I try to do in my book is to complicate that story a little bit. Um, you know, because of because of course, you know, so we all we all sort of know that story, right? The you know, the wolves used to be in Yellowstone, they got killed, the elk became, you know, much too populous, the elk, you know, ate all of the the stream side vegetation, um, the streams all eroded, uh, and now the wolves are back. And they're fixing the problem, uh, and you know, and that's kind of the version in that in that that YouTube video, which I think is actually narrated by by George Mambio. Um, but you know, that I think that 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 version of the story, you know, really excludes beavers. You know, the fact that beavers were incredibly um, abundant in in Yellowstone National Park historically. Uh, you know, you look at some of the pictures of the park, and I mean, there are you know places that today are just dry pasture land in the northern part of the park and you look at a picture from the 1920s and it's just I mean, it's just literally underwater um thanks to thanks to beavers so you know when we lost wolves and and those elk ate all all ate all that vegetation you know there was nothing for the beavers to eat and the beavers you know basically went um not quite extinct but nearly extinct in yellowstone um so you know i think that's a, a really important part of the process is that you know is that is that yes the wolves have come back but we also need the beavers to come back 
um, in in greater numbers in, in Yellowstone. Uh, you know, and and they're there. They're you know they're they're doing their thing in some of the streams, but you know they're still at a very very small fraction um, of their historic abundance. So I don't think that you know Yellowstone is is fixed or healed yet. Um, and for that to happen, you know, we, we really need the beaver recovery to continue. So, I'm, you know, I'm always thinking about the role of beavers in, in any ecosystem. I, I think Yellowstone's a great example of that. So, I, I, you know, we went, when we went back there, uh, you know, just, just last week, it, you know, it was my first time in, in the park in the winter. Um, I'd only been there in the, you know, spring, summer, and fall. Um, so I went looking for, for the beavers in all their usual spots. But, uh, of course, you know, they're their uh, lodges and dams were, were totally covered by snow. Um, but, you know, it is, it's reassuring to know that they're, you know, they're under there, they're under the snow, huddled in their, in their lodges, doing their thing, waiting for, waiting for spring to uh, emerge again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, look, I mean, and, and I, that is also a subtle thing that you uh, kind of tease out in the book also that uh, when you have be beavers in a landscape, it doesn't mean that the landscape stays the same. It, it goes between swampland, uh, grassland and other aspects because of the nature of what they do it, it it creates a fluid and changing landscape um so yeah you know like it's it's an interesting one um so th that book's written um what are you up to now you've mentioned and i could see from your twitter feed that you are in the process of writing and completing a book yeah that's right i'm i'm, I'm writing a book um about the science of road ecology which is basically how roads affect nature and uh, and how we deal with those impacts. So, you know, looking at everything from, um, you know, from, from roadkill, of course, the most obvious road impact to, you know, more subtle habitat fragmentation, right? So there are lots of animals that don't get hit by cars, but they don't cross roads at all. They might not be able to, you know, complete their migrations or, or find food or mates. Um, so that's kind of a more subtle impact to, you know, the chemical impacts of roads, you know, here uh, in, in, the, in the U.S., you know, we apply huge amounts of salt to roads as a kind of a de-icing agent. Um, and that salt, you know, ends up in, in, uh, in rivers and lakes and streams and causes all kinds of uh, ecological impacts. Um, so there's just this vast kind of suite of road road ecological impacts that I'm, I'm looking at in the book. And how do we start to solve some of those problems, too? You know, I'm sure that many of you uh, many of your listeners have seen pictures of wildlife crossings, you know, these these bridges or tunnels that go over and under highways and allow animals to uh, to get to the other side. So how, you know, where, where do we put those? How well do they work? What species use them? How do we design them so that different species use them more effectively? Those are the sorts of questions I'm, I'm trying to answer in this, this latest book, which I hope will be out, um, yeah, maybe in a year and a half or so. Uh-huh. Okay. And so, so like, in the 90s in the UK, there were a lot of uh, road protests to, to, to protest against roads just be, being put through areas of natural beauty. And then similarly, in obviously in the Amazon, you know, the, 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 every time you build a road, it has a detrimental impact. So so is, is your book mostly um, a negative a narrative or, or, or are there any elements of positivity that we can extract from it? Yeah, it's you know it's 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 mostly negative, Simon. I mean, I mean, it's that was kind of one of the funny things about you know writing writing this Beaver book was that it was this, you know this very kind of positive, hopeful, uh, exciting story about restoration. You know, and now I'm writing a story. I mean, now I'm writing a book about you know animals getting flattened. It's it's a bit a bit sadder, um, but you know, but but there but of course there are silver linings too. You know, um, I mean, one of the one of the exciting things that's happening in the in the road world is this you know this trend of of planting roadsides 
for pollinators, you know, for butterflies and bees. And that's, you know, and that's certainly going on um, all over all over Europe. Uh, you know, the idea being that look at this point, you know, most of the landscape is either, um, you know, it's either towns or it's intensive agriculture. And it turns out that these little strips of, of roadside vegetation are some of the best, you know, remaining kind of native uh, prairie habitat. Um, that's certainly true in the, you know, in the, in the American Midwest where, you know, the whole, the, you know, the, the whole breadbasket of the country is just, you know, cornfields and soy fields. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and, and those roadside strips are, are really important for, for monarch butterflies, you know, are kind of our most iconic insect. Um, but, you know, at the same time, I mean, of course, that, you know, living next to the road for, for uh, you know, for a butterfly, it's, it's a dangerous place, right? You know, there, there the, there's the, the risk of being hit by a car um, as you fly. Of course, there's the, um, you know, there's the kind of the chemical impact. So that, that road salt that I mentioned before, you know, might, that might poison your, your, the plants that you're trying to eat. So, you know, there's, there, it's, it's kind of a complicated story where, you know, there's, there, yes, there's habitat along the road, but, you know, that habitat is, is, uh, is somewhat dangerous and, and maybe not quite as good as it could be. So how can we make it better? Um, those, those are the kinds of questions I'm, I'm trying to address in, in this book. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah, and it sounds interesting. Um, as as someone in this space, and so and so, we cover we speak to a lot of people who are on the cutting edge of clean tech and green tech. At the same time, as climate change presents some very real challenges, uh, where are you on the scale between being optimistic and pessimistic about humanity's ability to to rein in the things that are creating climate change? Uh, do you think we're we're going to be able to, to, to address it or, 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 or where are we going on this one? Yeah, geez, that's a, that's a, that's a tough one, Simon. I wasn't, I wasn't ready for that, but you know, I mean, look, I, I, I would say, um, you know, I think I'm more optimistic than I was a couple, a couple of years ago, just because, you know, I, I mean, as, as of course your listeners know, you know, so much of the kind of the tech is going in the, in the right direction. You know, there's just, uh, I mean, obviously there's this, you know, this kind of burgeoning electric vehicle movement, um, you know, here in the U S I and mean, obviously renewable energy is, is just, uh, you know, cheaper than it's ever, it's ever been, uh, which is really exciting. And, you know, and of course, as, as, as all of you know, you know, it's, it's not as though we either solve climate change or we don't solve climate change, right? There, of course, there's this, this vast spectrum of degrees of warming that all have different impacts. So, you know, do I think that, um, of course, it's too late to, to prevent um, you know, climate change from occurring. It's, it's already happening, obviously, and so much of it is baked into the system at this point. It's going to keep happening. Um, but, you know, can we avoid uh, four degrees of warming? And yeah, now I, th I think I think that I think that we can. So I'm not, you know, I'm not optimistic that we're going to um, see, see submitting carbon tomorrow. Um, but I am more optimistic that I was than I was that we're going to avoid the most catastrophic impacts of warming that were forecast uh, a couple a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for your answer. And um, sorry for throwing a difficult one at you. No, um, it's an interesting question. <laughs> um, so, how do you uh, remain up to date and informed? What are your go-to sources of information, e either people or outlets? Uh, how, how do you uh, receive your and curate your news? Mm, that's a that's a good question. I mean, I mean, certainly, I. You you know, I spend um, I spend a lot of time on Twitter, like like most journalists. You know, and I'm, I'm uh, you know I'm, I'm friends or followers of, of um, you know the every every environmental journalist I can think of, and and you know certainly I'm I'm reading reading all of their their stories for different outlets. I think that's that's kind of one of the interesting things about social media. You know, is that it, it makes you I'm less a consumer of 
specific news outlets, although of course there are some, you know, like the New York Times and the Washington Post and the, the BBC uh, and the Guardian um, that, I, you know, I'm, I'm reading very regularly, but I'm less a consumer of specific news outlets than I am a, a, a consumer of specific writers or journalists uh, or podcasters or, you know, or, or, or videographers, um, you know, because, because now it's, it's, yeah, we, we, you know, we've created this, this situation where, uh, you know, there's so much, there's, I mean, I mean, so many people I know in this, in this field are freelancers, right? Um, you know, most of my friends are, are freelancers. They don't work for a particular publication. Um, so, you know, so uh, yeah, more than, more than reading individual news outlets, I'm reading individual news creators or writers, um, which I think is, a, is sort of an interesting shift in, in how uh, people consume their their media. Yeah, I guess like you say, yeah, and um, we are in the fortunate position that there's a lot of people doing interesting things and uh, by Twitter and Instagram and other ways, we can at least get a sense of what their current interests are, you know, like yourself and George Monbiot and others, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's also it's also a great medium for connecting with with scientists directly, you know, I mean, for me as somebody who, you know, of course, I'm writing about writing about science and nature and conservation, um, you know, and and all of the people working in that field are today themselves on on social media. So it's, so for me, it's a great, you know, it's a great connector with sources. It's a great way to, you know, get get story ideas. Um, and you know, it's, at times it feels like you know that kind of the journalists, the intermediaries, are are increasingly. You know, I would never say that we're, you know, we're we're irrelevant, but um, you know, there's just I mean, there's just so many ways in which, um, you know, a a superstar celebrity scientist can connect directly to an audience now um, without the help of a journalist. Uh, that's a that's a pretty interesting trend to observe too. Is is you know is is the scientists themselves becoming, you know, almost media outlets in their own right, um, which is I think a very interesting development. Yeah, look, you're right. I mean, I mean, say like like Brian Cox. I mean, you know, if if you want to learn more, you can find lectures by him on YouTube. Uh, and and I guess, I mean, we spoke to uh, uh, somebody whose brief in Ireland is to communicate and popularize science, and so therefore, uh, he does a TV show where he talks about interesting new inventions that are coming up. And like you hmm. say, I guess. And like from Carl Sagan, since, you know, like, it, I guess it's always been a thing where if you have a scientist who's articulate and can present, then there's definitely a, a role for them, isn't there? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and I mean, of course, that's that's a, you know, an ancient tradition here in the in the U.S. as well. You know, people like like Rachel Carson, um, you know, wonderful marine biologist and Aldo Leopold, you know, the kind of the, the, the founder of wildlife biology or one of the founders. You know, so, so certainly, I mean, scientists have always been. Um, writers and, and communicators uh, themselves. You're absolutely right about that. But you know, I think that, that increasingly, you know, the, the barriers to, to becoming uh, a scientist communicator are are, are decreasing and, and and falling down. And and uh, you know, that's a, a really uh, a really exciting exciting trend in a, in a in a lot of ways. Okay. So my my penultimate question then is 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 as a journalist and as we've discussed this. Uh, do you think that we can move beyond we can move to a post fake news period where where you know like people can uh communicate and n you know not have alternative facts that we can use journalism to to show that there are actually uh real and important things to be aware of yeah i don't i don't know simon i i, I um it's I, of course it's possible but i don't i don't feel 
very optimistic about that at the at the moment. I mean, I think that you know that of course Trump just did so much damage to the the way that um, you know, the media is perceived here in the U.S. and it just you know just pushed us so deep into our 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 little media bubbles. Um, you know, there's I mean, there's just so little crossover now between the you know the kinds of people who read the New York Times and the kinds of people who watch Fox News. Um, and I'm not I'm not really sure how we get out of those those silos. You know, it, it's I mean historically. You know the kind of the places where everybody convened were the local newspapers, right? That you know that's these these hyper local news sources that weren't partisan, uh, that were just you know serving serving your communities. But you know now all of those all of those uh, those publications are are dead or dying, uh, and there's you know there's really there's really a, a big um, you know local news crisis uh, in in the U.S. now, which which is which is really really unfortunate. Um, everybody's everybody's just you know just retreating into their into their 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 social media and and cable TV bubbles. Um, so uh, yeah, I'm not I'm not very optimistic um, about <laughs> about about that. But you know, but but th at the same time, that's not you know that's it's somewhat disheartening. But you know, but I think that in some ways that you know the role of of who journalists are trying to reach is is changing. Um, you know, for me. You know, it's. I mean, yes, I, I'd, I'd like to imagine that there are some, you know, there's some former Beaver haters who read my book and, you know, and now and now um, love them. Uh, you know, and I, and I know that there are that that has definitely happened. But you know, for me, I, I think that, you know, less than those people, I'm trying to convince the people who are already kind of philosophically predisposed to like nature and wildlife and conservation. I'm trying to convince them that. You know, this is a cause they should support um, out of all of those causes. You know, there's a great, a great Bill McKibben quote um, that, that Bill told me a, a few years ago, which is that, you know, don't worry about preaching to the choir because you're just going to do that as a, you know, as an environmental journalist. You know, your your goal is really to, to get the choir to sing louder. Uh, and I think that's, you know, I think I think about I think about that a lot. You know, how can I take the people who are already kind of on the, the side of nature and conservation and make them more powerful advocates? For the the causes that I think are important. So so yeah, in some ways, who I'm trying to reach as a journalist has changed, and you know what I'm hoping to to accomplish um, has has changed as well in some respects. Yeah, and like you say, it is challenging. But I guess if you have that awareness, at least then it helps you to analyze what you're writing and what you're thinking, and then then you have a clearer voice when you write. Um, so a final pop question would be: uh, apart from beavers, what are your favorite three animals? Ooh, that's a, that is a that is a good question. You know, so I'm a I'm a I'm a I'm an angler. Um, so you know, I, I really I really love fish. You know, I love. I mean, here you know we've got um in in Washington State where I live we've got we've got native uh rainbow trout. Um, so you know, which I just think think some some of the most beautiful beautiful animals on, on earth. You know, rainbow and cutthroat trout. Um, are are, are just uh, yeah, those are they're those are really really wonderful um wonderful creatures. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, I love I love coyotes. Um, you know, you, you mentioned the picture that I took in, I took in Yellowstone where, you know, we were, we were skiing and we were on the ski trail and this coyote popped out of the brush yeah. and came walking down the ski trail. And if I hadn't gotten out of his way, uh, you know, he would have bumped into my, my ankles. Uh, okay. it was just, just amazing. I, mean, I, you know, I think they're just so, um, adaptable, uh, and, and cunning and smart. And, uh, you know, they're really one of, one of, um, you know, one of North America's great wildlife success stories is, is you know, coyotes kind of taking taking over the continent. So I, I, I really have to admire uh, admire coyotes. Uh, and then, um, yeah, and then bats. I, you know, I've always I've always loved bats. Bats were one of the animals that first got me interested in in nature. Um, but, you know, of course, echolocation is just an amazing uh, an amazing 
sensory ability. Um, you know, bats are, they're very intelligent. People don't, don't realize how intelligent bats are, um, but they're very, they're very bright creatures. And of course, you know, like beavers, they, you know, they're, they're really these keystone species that play uh, a crucial role in the ecosystem. So I've, I've always, you know, I remember my first, one of my first wildlife experiences when I was a, a university student was doing some, some bat, um, some bat live trapping and, and tracking and, and, uh, you know, holding a, holding a bat in my in my hand, you know, with gloves on, of course, this little, uh, you know, this kind of warm, pulsating, beating heart in my hand was just an incredibly uh, powerful emotional experience. And, and one of the things that really got me turned on to, uh, to, to wildlife. So yeah, I'm, so, I'm, so I'll say, I'll say rainbow trout, uh, coyotes and bats. Awesome. And that's a nice range from, you know, things you can eat, things that you would might bite you. And then like you say, bat, <laughs> but bats are, cool they're much more interesting than people realize that you know there's the yuck reaction but actually you know they're very yeah i i, I hear you on that one yeah um, and you know and they're so and they're so they're so maligned right now too of course because of their you know their their role in in uh, in, in spreading zoonotic disease like like covid so so bats you know bats really need they need an, an image rehabilitation and i'm hoping to accomplish that <laughs> awesome um it's been a pleasure to speak to you how can people learn more about you and your work Sure. Yeah, they can visit my website, which is just at www.bengoldfarb.com. And that's got all my all my information. Great. Thanks very much, Ben. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me, Simon. That was fun. Thank you for listening to the latest Irish Tech News podcast. Check back every day for the latest episode. You can follow us on Twitter at Irish underscore tech news on Facebook facebook.com forward slash Irish Tech News. On LinkedIn, linkedin.com forward slash company forward slash Irish dash tech dash news. On Instagram, instagram.com forward slash Irish Tech News dot IE. And on TikTok, tiktok.com forward slash at Irish Tech News.